Okay, I think we're ready to get started tonight. It's good to see everyone. And we are in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And we'll read verses 20 through 30. Matthew 11, 20 to 30. <clears throat> There it says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, that you have chosen in your will Lord, to hide, Lord, so much of the gospel, Lord, the truths of scripture, Lord, from those who are wise and intelligent, Lord, from the rich and the powerful and the famous of this world. And instead, Lord, you have revealed your will uh, to little children, Lord, to those who are considered nothing in this world, Lord, those who are insignificant, those who are poor. Lord, this is well-pleasing in your sight, and we thank and praise you, Lord, for your ways in the world. Lord, how it is that you cause your light to shine upon one, and Lord, how it is that you leave another man in darkness. So, Lord, we see and we recognize, Lord, that your ways are great, they are mysterious, Lord, they are far above ours, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us tonight, Lord, to see and to recognize, Lord, how it is that you are working in this world. Father, we do pray that you would reveal yourself to us uh, through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would open our eyes and give us understanding. Lord, as well for our children, Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that they might come to know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Lord, we do pray that you would, um, Lord, place upon us the, the yoke of Christ, and that, Lord, we would uh, take his yoke upon us, and, Lord, that we would find rest for our souls. So, Lord, teach us tonight, be with us as we study your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in this passage in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus had just sent out the 12 disciples to go and do ministry, and then there were these messengers that came from John asking um, whether or not he was the expected one or if they should look for someone else, and then Jesus gave a tribute a, uh, to John and to his ministry, his person and what he was and what it was that he did, and then also began to describe what the people were like, right? How it is that they neither listened to John nor have they listened to Jesus, but were using these lame excuses in order to justify their own 
uh, unrepentance and their own rejection of the word of God, right? When John came, he did not eat or drink, and they claimed that he had a demon. Then the Son of Man comes, eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So in both cases, it doesn't matter whether you come like John, not eating and drinking, or whether you come like Jesus, eating and drinking. In either case, they find a way to justify their rejection of the messenger, because ultimately, the problem is they hate his message. They did not like the message of John, and they did not like the message of Jesus, because the message of John and Jesus were one and the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and they did not want to repent. Right, that is the issue at hand. It is their unrepentance, their lack of repentance, uh, at the preaching of the word of God. They don't want to give up their sin, right, which is common as well. Now, in verses 20 through 30, Jesus is going to denounce, uh, pronounce a curse upon these cities where he did the majority of his ministry, but also show that this is not something that catches God off guard. It doesn't catch Jesus off guard. He doesn't, uh, he's not bewildered and perplexed when he thinks about the fact that most of the people who saw him did not believe him, did not repent. This is not something that he is perplexed about, but rather is an occasion for him to glorify God and to praise God. And this is what he's dealing with in these passages today. So let's pick up in verse 20, and we'll go from there. Verse 20 says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Here, these cities where many of his miracles or most of his miracles were done, we understand that Jesus, he spent a majority of his time in this area around the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and these other cities that were in that region, in this region of Galilee. This is where he spent the majority of his time, or this is where his home base was at, right? This is where he would go back to, and then they would go out and do ministry in other villages and places. He would go up to Jerusalem, but then they would come back to this area. So naturally, he spent a lot of time there. He did a lot of teaching there, and he performed many mighty miracles in that area. And though he was there, Though his person was there, though they saw his many miracles and they heard his gracious word, what was generally true of the people, right? Not all of them, but most of them, right? Generally speaking, what was true of the people is that they would not repent. They did not repent. That's what he points out. That's the emphasis here. This is why Jesus is denouncing them, because though they saw his miracles and though they heard his preaching, and his preaching was summarized with this saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, yet they refused to repent. And why is it that men refuse to repent? They love sin. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They are hard-hearted and they will not listen and they will not repent of their sins. And this puts them under great condemnation. Great judgment and condemnation because the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And are they not experiencing the kindness of God? Isn't this a grace and a mercy from God to have the word of God so accessible to you? To have the word of God not taught by some mere man, right? Not even taught by another prophet, but to have the word of God taught to you by God incarnate, God in human flesh, the son of God, the son of man, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus of Nazareth. 
He's the one that was among them, preaching the word of God to them. This is a great kindness. How many people in the history of the world ever experienced this? Right? Very, very few people in human history ever lived during the time of Christ, then lived in the region where Christ performed his ministry during the time of Christ, and then actually got to hear him preach and teach and see him perform miracles. And they had the majority of this, right? Most of his miracles were done in this area. So if in any area you should find true believers and those who are repenting of sin, where should it be at? It should be in Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin. This is where you should find these people. And yet, what is true? There's nothing there. They're barren. These are barren fig trees. They're not producing any good fruit to God. They are not repenting. They have the kindness of God there, and yet the kindness of God is not leading to repentance. And when it doesn't lead to repentance, then what is the result? You store up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2. Romans 2 Verses 1 to 11. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things? and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There, the kindness of God the tolerance of God, the patience of God should lead to repentance. But when it doesn't lead to repentance because of a stubborn heart, right? That's why they won't repent. It's not because the preacher is, a, is unclear. It's not because the preacher is too harsh. He's too loud. He's eating and drinking. He's not eating and drinking. That's not why they will, won't repent. The reason men will not repent is because of their stubborn heart and their unrepentant heart. They refuse to repent and believe because they love sin more than righteousness. They love lies more than truth. Well, when a person does that, you store up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's why Jesus is denouncing them. He's denouncing them because these people are under the curse of God and they have stored up for themselves wrath upon wrath upon wrath, even more so than cities that are considered to be very sinful, evil, scandalous cities in human history. Yet these cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom are better off than these cities of Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. Also, while we're in Romans, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, 
that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The advantage of the Jew is that they have access to the things of God. They have the oracles of God delivered to them. The prophets were Jews, and they wrote to the Jews, and they delivered the word of God to the Jews, not to other nations, but to them. They had the oracles of God. This is a great benefit for them. It is a kindness of God, and it should lead to repentance. Okay, one other passage. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Verses 15 and 16. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Right, that's, again, as we read in Romans chapter 2. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. When people reject the word of God, then they're storing up wrath upon wrath upon wrath, and ultimately, eventually, what happens? The dam breaks. The dam breaks, and it sweeps, sweeps them away in the flood, in the flood of wrath. That's what happened to the nation of Israel in 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. God sent them prophets, and the prophets proclaimed the word of God to them. This was the kindness of God, giving them the word of God, giving them such good prophets who proclaimed the word of truth to them, yet the people would not listen. They refused to repent, and every time they did, they heaped up more wrath upon themselves, and then ultimately the day of wrath come, and there was no remedy. Well, this is what's happening here. These people are so hard-hearted, so stubborn, right? It's not an issue of, of lack of clarity. It's not an issue of a lack of proof. It's all there before them. What is the problem? What is lacking? It is their heart. It is their own stubborn, wicked heart. This is why they refuse to repent. And when Jesus sees this, he denounces them. And he's doing this publicly, not privately, but publicly denouncing them, right, in their midst, right? This is where he's at, and he's denouncing them for these things. Verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Here, these two cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, these are two of those cities there near the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus performed many of these miracles. And here, he says, had the same miracles been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago. So he's saying the people of Tyre and Sidon, they're better than you. Right? They would have repented at the miracles, at the preaching of the gospel, but you refuse to repent. Right? This is how evil, how wicked, how hard-hearted you people are. In Tyre and Sidon, these are not uh, bastions of virtue. These are not people who are good, upstanding, moral, righteous people. These are notorious sinners, very evil, very wicked people. And for Jesus to be comparing these Jews to the people of Tyre and Sidon, 
would have been extremely offensive to them. And yet, not only does he compare them to them, Jesus is saying, you're worse than them. You are worse than these Gentiles who are considered to be scandalous, notorious sinners in your sight and who are denounced by name, right? Tyre and Sidon are denounced by name in the prophets, right? They are condemned for their sin. Ezekiel 26 does such. Ezekiel chapter 26 Right when again when Ezekiel writes this, it is a just and righteous writing. It is true. It is a true prophecy. It is a just declaration concerning the people, the men of Tyre. And certainly the Jews who would have received this would have agreed, concurred. Yes, they are wicked people. But if you judge others, do you not have to judge yourself? Right, yes, they are wicked. Tyre is wicked. Sidon is wicked. We should condemn them. But we also have to examine our own life and see what is in us. And if we're no better than them, then we need to repent, right? We need to repent and we cannot boast that we're better than them, right, if we are practicing the same sins that they practice. Ezekiel 26, verse 1. Now in the 11th year, the first month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gateway of the peoples is broken. It has opened to me. I shall be filled now that she has laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become spoil for the nations. Also, her daughters, who are on the mainland, will be slain by the sword. They will know that I am the Lord. God is going to lay this city of Tyre, this ancient city, this city that was out in the middle of the sea, in the Mediterranean Sea, not in the middle of it, but it was off the shore, and it was impenetrable. It had great natural fortifications because of it was built out in the middle of the sea. And yet he says, I'm going to scrape it bare. I'm going to lay it bare, so bare that the fishermen are going to cast their nets over you. It's going to be covered with water. This is what I'm going to do to you. Because whenever Jerusalem was punished by God, and whenever Jerusalem faced the judgment of God, they didn't repent when they saw that, but instead they mocked them. They mocked them and they took advantage of them, and they did not repent of their sin. So Tyre and Sidon, these the city and this nation are very, very evil, very wicked. And yet, Jesus says, had the same miracles occurred in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 22, nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. Now, Jesus isn't saying that Tyre and Sidon are going to go to the fun part of hell, and the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida are going to go to the hot part. Right? They have air conditioners over here, but over here is smoking hot. He's not saying that. But he is talking about degrees of sin. And there is there are degrees of sin, and there are degrees of judgment and punishment. Some sins are greater, more heinous 
than other sins, and they bring upon them greater judgment and greater condemnation, right? This is as Jesus said in John chapter 19, that to Pilate, the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, right? Judas and the Jews had the greater sin than Pilate because they were the instigators. They were the ones who started this and who did this. Pilate was just caught up in it. Pilate sinned, but his sin was not as great as Judas and the Jews. Well, in the same way, Tyre and Sidon are great sinners, and Tyre and Sidon will face the judgment of God, and they will have eternal punishment in hell. But their punishment will not be as severe as the punishment of Bethsaida and of Chorazin, because their sin is of a more heinous nature than the sins of Tyre and Sidon. And what is the nature of the sin of Chorazin and Bethsaida? their rejection of Christ. Right. They rejected Christ, his person, him there with them. They had so much revelation given to them, so many miracles that they saw and that they experienced that it shows how wicked and how hard-hearted they are. The one who has, right, the one who has more will be required of him, right? The one who has the greater revelation. This is as it says in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. Luke 12, 48. The one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So the one who has been given much, much will be required, right? The one who is entrusted with much, they will ask him all the more, right? Well, this is the case with these cities. They have been given much in terms of exposure and access to the things of God, to the word of God, to the miracles of God, to the person of Christ. Did Jesus Christ in human flesh ever visit the cities of Tyre and Sidon? Did he ever walk in their streets? Did he ever raise people from the dead in their presence? Did he heal the blind and heal lepers and heal uh, those who are lame? Did they ever see those things for three years while he was there living among them ministering? Did he go to their synagogues and preach the gospel in Tyre and Sidon? No, they never had any access to these things. But these cities did. They had much more given to them. So much more will be required of them on the day of judgment. This is the same as James chapter 3, when he says, Not many of you should be teachers, my brethren, knowing that we who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. Those who teach, who have this position, they will have a greater judgment, a greater expectation of judgment on the day of judgment because of the position that has been given to them. Well, in the same way, here, these cities have a stricter judgment than Tyre and Sidon, because more has been entrusted to them. More access, more revelation, even the miracles of God in their midst, and yet still, though all of this was done for them, they refused to repent. Tyre and Sidon refused to repent, but their revelation given to them was not as great as the revelation given to these cities. Then also, verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. 
Now another city, Capernaum. And Capernaum is brought last and set off by itself because Capernaum is where Jesus spent most of his time. Of all of them, this was the city when Jesus was on earth where he spent the majority of his time. The city of Capernaum. The city of Capernaum. If we go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So there, he settled in Capernaum. He settled there. These other cities were close to Capernaum, so he visited there frequently. But this is where he settled, meaning this is where he was at whenever he wasn't doing something else. He was there in Capernaum. So Jesus is saying, you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Because the Son of Man settled in Capernaum, does that automatically mean that Capernaum and all the inhabitants of Capernaum are going to be exalted into heaven? And his answer is no. But rather, what's going to happen to them? You will descend to Hades. You're not going to go to heaven. You're all going to go to hell. You're going to go to Hades. You're going to have judgment and eternal torment and punishment because of your sin. Why? For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. The same thing. Now, another city is brought up. Tyre and Sidon are bad enough, but of all the cities in the Bible, right, the most notorious city, right, in terms of wickedness, there are many wicked cities, but one of the worst is Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom was the most prominent of all of them, right, Sodom. We even have a term that we use today for people, Sodomites, right, because of the city of Sodom for a very heinous type of sexual deviation, so Sodom is a horrible city. How many cities in the history of the world can we say that God sent fire and brimstone from heaven to destroy these cities? And according to Jude, the, the apostle, the fire and brimstone sent on Sodom and Gomorrah was an example of the eternal punishments of hell, the eternal fires of hell. So they were so wicked, so evil, that God wiped them off the face of the earth, completely obliterated them in an instant by sending fire and brimstone to extinguish this wicked city. Yet, here, Jesus says, Capernaum is worse than who? They're worse than Sodom. It, they're worse than Sodom. If the miracles that Jesus did in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Right? Remember when Abraham was talking to, to the Lord, and he said, if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare it? And God said, yes, if there are 10, then he would spare it. Now, how many righteous persons were there in Sodom? One. One. Only Lot was there. Only Lot was there. He was the only righteous man there. But had Jesus come there and performed his miracles, there would have been 10 or maybe 20. Who knows, right? It would have remained to this day is what Jesus says. It would not have been destroyed. It would not have been destroyed. Now, again, when he's saying these things, he's speaking in these hypothetical ways. 
He's not questioning or doubting the will of God, the purpose of God, in any way, shape, or form. He's simply making a point to show how evil the sin of Capernaum is in contrast to Sodom, right? People think of Sodom and they say, oh, you can't get any worse than this. Yet Jesus is saying you can get worse than Sodom. And what these people did in Capernaum is actually worse than what happened in Sodom. Luke chapter 16 Luke 16, when he says Hades, we know from Luke 16, 22 and 23, that Hades is a place of torment. This is where the rich man went, of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke 16, 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So Hades is a place of torment, a place of torment. So when Jesus says you will descend to Hades, you're not going to go to heaven and be comforted like Lazarus. You're going to go to Hades and be tormented like the rich man. Then verse 24. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Here again, the same reason, the same reason. Much is given, much is required, right? The revelation that they received, the things that they saw, that they witnessed with their own eyes, with their own ears, did not lead them to repentance, the kindness of God, right? Entire Sidon, Sodom, they never had John the Baptist come to their city and preach the gospel, they never had Jesus Christ perform many mighty miracles in their cities and preach the gospel to them. Right? These cities had the light of nature from Romans chapter 1. They had the light of the conscience from Romans chapter 2. And then they had some small exposure to the things of God, to the truth. In terms of Sodom, righteous Lot lived there. And whatever exposure, whatever interactions they would have had with Lot, there would have been some more revelation or some more that was given to them. Tyre and Sidon, they were in somewhat proximity to Israel. So it's likely that there was some interaction with Israelites and that they had some exposure to the truth throughout the years. But it would not have been to the extent of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, who had the Son of God in human flesh among them, performing many mighty miracles, and preaching constantly in their synagogues, in their streets, in their towns, in their homes, and yet they refused to repent. And this highlights just how evil they are. Notice the difference between them and the Samaritans in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Verse 39. And here... He didn't even perform a miracle other than telling this woman everything that she had ever done. But why would they trust her, right? She's a loose woman. John 4, 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. Notice that. Yeah. Not because of his miracles, but because of his word. Amen. First, the word of the woman, her testimony, and then his word. They're believing in him. 
And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. And after two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. Look at the contrast. Going to Galilee, where no one believes, and here, many of them believe. Many of them believe in his word. Also, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verses 38 to 42. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Nineveh, that's another notorious city, isn't it? A wicked city. Yet during the days of Jonah, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So on the day of judgment, they're going to rise up in judgment against this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And who's the better preacher, Jonah or Jesus? Jesus, Jesus right? They had a, an inferior preacher, but they repented, whereas they have a superior preacher, Jesus, but they refused to repent. And also the queen of the south. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Did it take her a great effort to do that? To travel all those miles, over 500 miles, to come from where she was from, up through Egypt, all the way to Israel to come? And she just heard of the wisdom of Solomon, and she came to see it. But what about the men of Capernaum, and of Bethsaida, and Chorazin? Do they have to travel 500 miles to hear no. the word of God? No, they just have to get up, flop out of bed, and he's right there. And yet, they won't listen. And who's wiser? Who has more wisdom, Solomon or Jesus? Jesus. She made great effort to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Someone greater than Solomon is here, and you people don't put any effort into it. You don't care, right? They have no interest in the things of God. It's no different than our own day. Right. People make great effort to do things that they like for their vacations, for their hobbies and their activities. They will sacrifice. They'll move land and sea for those things. But if there's one snow flurry that falls from the sky, well, we better not go to church because we don't want to die on the way, right? Or if there's the sniffles, they, oh, we better... The people will make all sorts of excuses for those types of things. Okay, now, back to Matthew chapter 11. A couple of points for us to consider on this part. First, we have to see our connection, our relationship to the people of Bethsaida, of Chorazin, and of Capernaum. They had great proximity to the things of God. They had great uh, access to the things of God. Now, in terms of miracles, they are greater than us in that regard. We, don't, we have not experienced the many miracles of Jesus. And they're greater in us in regards that we've never been alive during the time of Christ. We didn't live during that time. He's never come and preached in our church or in our streets or in our synagogues. We haven't experienced those things. But in terms of access to the things of God, to the word of God, 
we have just as great an access to the Word of God as they do. So if we don't repent and believe, then we'll have great judgment as well. If we don't repent and believe, we will be worse than Tyre and Sidon and Sodom on the day of judgment because we have more access to the light, to the knowledge of God, to the truth of God than those three wicked cities. So if we don't repent of our sin and believe in Christ, then we will face a great judgment on the day of judgment. A mere association with the things of God is not enough. We have to have true faith. True faith, true repentance, manifested in a life of godliness. This is what God requires of us. So we should not take it lightly. We must use the privileges given to us. It is a great privilege to have the Word of God taught to have access to the Bible, to, to own our own copies of the Bible, right? Don't we all, everyone has Bibles out here. You have hard copies, you have a copy on your phone, you can get on the uh, internet and look stuff up very easily. It's right at our fingertips. It's right there all the time. We have such access to the things of God. That is a great privilege. It is a kindness from God. Yeah. It should lead to repentance, but if it doesn't lead to repentance, then we're storing up wrath for ourselves. That's the danger. But many people think just an association, just having some connection to the things of God, that's enough. That'll do. That'll get me into heaven. Just like the people of Capernaum, just like the people of Bethsaida and Chorazin. Who will say on the day of judgment, oh no, Jesus, you know us. Remember, you taught in our streets, right? You ate with us. We, you came into our home. Well, what do you mean, depart from me, you worker of iniquity? You know who we are, but Jesus does not know them and Jesus will not welcome them in the kingdom of God. Luke 13, 22. Luke 13, 22. It says, He was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? <laughs> are there just a few? Why would somebody ask that question? Only if no one's believing, right? Very few are believing, right? What's going on? Why doesn't anyone believe you, Jesus? Are there only a few going to be saved? And he said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. Isn't that true of Capernaum? Yep. Chorazin, Bethsaida? All these things are, we ate and drank in your presence. Didn't Jesus go to feast with them, marriages with them? Uh, he went to various things, went into people's homes. We were there with you. We ate in your presence. And you taught in our streets. He did that as well. And then what will he say? And he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Doesn't that go back to our passage in Matthew 11? They will not what? Repent. Repent. They're evildoing people. They are evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Who's going to come from east, west, north, and south? The Gentiles. 
right? And in this case, we read about the men of Nineveh. Well, Nineveh is to the northeast of Jerusalem, and the queen of the south is southwest of Jerusalem, of the land of Israel. They're going to come and sit in the kingdom of God with the prophets, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets. And then the men of Israel, the men of Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin, they will be left out. So we have to take it very seriously, right? It is a great blessing that we have access to the word of God, but the one who is given much, much is required of him. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, makes the same connection in relationship to the wilderness generation. The wilderness generation. They experienced many blessings from God. They had great proximity to the things of God. They had a great pastor, Moses the prophet, yep. preaching the word of God to them. They saw many miracles from God, but what happened to most of them? They died in the wilderness, and then they went to hell. This is where they will go. Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. There's the connection we stand in the same place as them. They had the gospel preached to them. We have the gospel preached to us. The gospel that they heard did not benefit them because they didn't believe it. Well, how's the gospel going to benefit us then? If we believe it, we have to believe the word of God. Also, one last point to make in relation to Matthew 11, 20 to 24. This would be a good passage to bring up if you have a Armenian friend or a free willer ask them this question if God wants to save all men which is what free willers believe they believe that from Adam to the end of the world God wants he God desires every single person who has ever existed to go to heaven and the only thing that keeps God from accomplishing this desire is the pesky free will of man. He will not violate man's free will because he doesn't want people to be robots. And they quote a passage from the Bible in 3 Corinthians for that. Okay, no, not really, because it doesn't exist in the Bible. Okay, so ask them, if God wants all men to be saved from Adam to the end of the world, right, this is what God wants, and the only reason he doesn't accomplish it is because of the free will of man, then why did he not perform miracles entire Sidon and Capernaum. Or not, not Tyre, Sidon, and Capernaum. Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Because didn't Jesus say if the miracles done in these cities had been done there, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes? Is it a violation of their free will to perform a miracle in their presence? No, that's not a violation of their free will. So why didn't he send someone there, a prophet, to go do miracles for them? So that they might see the miracles and they might repent of their sin and they might believe. Why didn't he do miracles in those places? He did it in these cities, but he didn't do it there. And why isn't he doing miracles in our day? Not the false miracles of the uh, charismanias, but the true miracles. Why doesn't God do that today? Won't more people believe if they're doing miracles? And how is that a violation of the free will of man? It isn't. So why doesn't God do it? 
if it will lead to, as Jesus says, repentance in sackcloth and ashes. Couldn't he send Abraham down to Sodom to do miracles? Lot's already there. Couldn't Lot go there and do miracles? Didn't two holy angels go into the city of Sodom? Couldn't they have performed some miracles while they were there? And wasn't Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, there in Genesis 18, visiting with Abraham, overseeing the destruction? He could have gone down there and performed some miracles. He could have sent prophets to Tyre and Sidon, and yet he never did any of those things. But if God wants all people to be saved, then why doesn't he do that, right? Why doesn't he do that? And this is because God's desire isn't to save every single person. God's desire is to save the elect and to glorify himself through the salvation of the elect and through the judgment that comes upon the ungodly. This is what God is doing in the world. So free willers, they can't make sense of these passages. Well, they really can't make sense of the next one because it's not found in the Bible, right? What they teach and believe is a contradiction of the Bible right. and you can't make sense of scripture. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. Here, Jesus is performing many miracles, doing much ministry, and yet very few people are believing him. So great is the unbelief and the stubbornness of the people that he even has to denounce these cities where he's doing the majority of his ministry. Is he depressed over these things? Is he in despair? Is he perplexed? Is he bewildered? He doesn't know what to do, what to make of all the things that's going on. He wants everyone to be saved, and yet no one is being saved. He wants them to listen, yet they refuse to listen. Is he questioning the will of God, the ways of God, the purpose of God? Right? Why are we doing it this way? We should do it a different way, right? a more effective way. Right? Life church is much better at getting people than Jesus. Right? So many other churches are much better than Jesus at doing ministry. Yet, is Jesus bewildered? Absolutely not. He praises God. Right? At that time, after he denounces the cities, right? what is leading Jesus to praise God? It is the unbelief of the people leads him to praise God. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. So it does not catch Jesus off guard. He doesn't have a crisis of faith. He understands the will of God, the ways of God, what God is doing in the world. And God's purpose is not to save every single person. God's purpose is to save some, the remnant, and then for others to have it hidden from them. And here, who's the one hiding it from them? You. You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. God hides it from them. And Jesus is praising God for revealing it to one and hiding it from another. Revealing it to the infant, hiding it from the wise and the learned. God is the one who hides it from them. He blinds them so that they cannot see. Now, this does not make God the author of their sin. They are responsible for their own sin, yet God is the one who brings it about. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. It says, For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. There, God will send on them a deluding influence with the result is so that they will believe what is false. God sends the deluding influence. They believe what is false and what is the ultimate purpose so that they will be judged who did not believe so that God can bring judgment and condemnation upon them. First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. Verses 7 and 8. 1 Peter 2, verse 7. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieved, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they were disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed right. they were appointed by whom by God. by God God appointed them to this doom this is the same as what Jesus is dealing with in Matthew chapter 11 right the stone Jesus Christ the precious cornerstone right he is precious to some but to other people he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and what makes the difference the will of God right. God reveals him to one and he hides him from another the one that is revealed sees Jesus as a precious cornerstone the other from whom it is hidden he stumbles over Jesus Christ to his own doom and to his own destruction as he was appointed by God to stumble over him also Romans chapter 9 Romans chapter 9 verses 14 to 18 Romans chapter 9 verse 14 says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. He has mercy and he hardens whomever he desires. That is the same as here. He reveals to one that's having mercy. He hides from another. That is, he hardens. And Jesus isn't caught off guard by this. He understands the doctrine of election. He understands it. He believes it. He's teaching it, professing it, and he's praising God for it. This is the way that we have to be as well. We can't be ashamed of these truths. We have to preach them, proclaim them, shout them from the rooftop. What do we have to be ashamed of? People who don't believe it, they're the ones that should be ashamed because it's in the Bible. And we should praise God for these truths and shouldn't be perplexed if, you know, there's only a few of us. God can do whatever he wants. He can do something like the day of Pentecost where 3,000 souls were saved in one day or it may be a few here and there. And whatever is the case, 
we shouldn't question the ways of God, but we should be faithful. Be faithful as Jesus was to preach the word of God. And if God gives a great harvest, then praise the Lord. But if it's a meager harvest, then praise the Lord, right? It's all up to God and whatever he wants to do. And we can't control whether it's many or few, because ultimately it's God who has to reveal Christ. God has to do it. We can't do it. All we can do is preach the word of God, but God has to open their eyes. In some, he opens their eyes, in others, he hides from. In either way, God gets the glory, and we just need to be faithful to do the will of the Lord. Verse 26 says, this was well-pleasing in your sight. What is well-pleasing in the sight of God? To reveal it to infants and to hide it from the wise and intelligent. This is pleasing to God because it confounds the world. It exposes the world for its foolishness, for its folly. Because the world puts all of its emphasis in power, prestige, in worldly wisdom, in pedigrees, things like this. But those are the ones, generally speaking, not that there are no rich people who believe, and not that there are no intelligent people who believe, but typically, true believers are poor and uneducated. Poor and uneducated. This is generally the case. Isn't that the case with most of his disciples? And even the Pharisees say, these are uneducated men, right? How is it that they have such learning? He does this on purpose in order to confound the world, to show that your pedigree, your money, your power, God doesn't need it. God doesn't want it, right? You don't benefit me at all. And you have to renounce all those things in order to enter into the kingdom of God. You have to be humble in order to enter the kingdom of God. And it is the infants, the commoners, right? Those who are insignificant. They are the ones who are entering and those who are significant in their own eyes, they're going to be the outcasts and they are going to be left out. God gets glory in doing it this way. 1 Corinthians 1. uh, This is what the Apostle Paul says. Now again, it doesn't mean that no one who is rich can enter the kingdom of God or no one who is educated or intelligent can enter. We know the Apostle Paul was a very intelligent man and was a very educated man. But he had to become a fool in order to enter the kingdom of God. He had to give up the worldly prestige, the worldly honors that came with all of that in order to enter the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.26 For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Right there, notice again, not many wise. He didn't say no wise, right. not many mighty. He didn't say no mighty, not many noble. He didn't say no noble, but not many. There's a few here and there, but mostly it's those who are not wise according to the flesh, not mighty, not noble, according to the estimation of this world. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before the Lord. But uh, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right, He does away with these things so that no one can boast before the Lord. No one can say, well, the reason God saved me is because of all my money. 
and he needs my money. <laughs> the reason that God saved me is because I'm so smart, and he needed me to go out and explain things to people. He, he needed me for, for that. No, he doesn't need anyone. And so he chooses intentionally that which is despised and abased, that which is nothing in the world, in order to shame and confound the people of this world, and so that no one will boast before him. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Here, Jesus is explaining why. Why is it that there was so little faith in Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin? Why is it, even in our own day, that there are so few who take the word of God seriously? who believe the gospel, right? Even in relation to the world, there are few Christians, but then even in relationship to the church, there are few people who are, who are serious, who are genuine, who actually care about the things of God. Why is this the case? Well, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. So no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And how can we be saved if we don't know the Father and the Son? It's impossible. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We must know the Father through the Son in order to have eternal life in us. Well, then what is necessary? What has to happen? He says it right there, yes. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. The Son has to will to reveal the Father to us. That's why the people in Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin did not repent. It was not the will of Christ to reveal the Father to them in the secret, hidden way. It was the will of God to preach the gospel to them to prepare them for the day of judgment, to heap up wrath upon them. But it was not the will of Christ to reveal it in the inward man, right? By the work of the Spirit, right? Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit without measure. And he did not give them the Spirit, which is necessary for them to see and to understand and to have faith in the gospel. So whose will is supreme here? God's will. The free will of God. God has free will. Man does not have free will. If God uses his free will to open our eyes, then we will believe. But if God does not do it according to his free will, then we will not believe. It takes the will of God. He must reveal Christ to us. And Christ must reveal the Father to us. And has he chosen to reveal the Father to everyone? Well, obviously not, because these people aren't repenting. So it's not his will to reveal God to everyone, but only to some based upon whose choice? God's choice of election. That's Romans 9 through 11. It's God's choice of election. His will determines who to reveal the word of God to. This is so important to understand, and it's all throughout the Bible. It is inexcusable. Matthew 16, 17. Matthew 16, verse 17. We'll actually start reading in verse 13. Here's an example of the son 
willing, choosing to reveal the Father, or to reveal, or the Father choosing to reveal the Son to a man. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's the same as Matthew chapter 11, right? Flesh and blood didn't reveal to you. Not some other man didn't reveal it to you, nor did you figure it out on your own, Peter. The reason you understand these things is because my Father in heaven revealed this to you. God opened your eyes so that you could see and understand these things and make this kind of a statement. But you didn't come to it on your own, right? On your own, not through your own will, not through your pedigree in no way, shape, or form. Right. Also, while we're at it, John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verses 44 and 45. Jesus teaches this here as well. John 6, 44. No one can come to me. This has come to me for salvation. Right. No one can come to Jesus for salvation unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So there, no one can come to Christ unless he's drawn by the Father. He has to be drawn. And if he's drawn, he will be raised up on the last day. So this drawing isn't general. It's not drawing for everyone. It leads to salvation, raised up to eternal life on the last day. And they will all be taught by God. Taught by God in the inward man. Taught by God in the heart, right? Their heart will be changed. They'll be taught by God in the inward man person and they will learn in that way also john 6 63 john 6 63 it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing the words that i have spoken to you are spirit and life but there are some of you who do not believe for jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him right. and he was saying for this reason i have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father very, very clear, right? Is that, it's not confusing, hard to understand. It's crystal clear. So why do people not believe this? Because they don't like it, right? It's not that they can't understand it conceptually. They can understand it. That's very clear. They don't like it because of their own pride. It is pride and unbelief that causes people to reject these truths. Then verse 28. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here is where the free willers will say, Aha, look, here, it says it right here, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. He's, he's calling everyone to come to him, so then it's, it's up to our free will, right? That's what they'll say. This is one of their favorite verses to use to promote free will. But what do you have to do in order to get free will out of this verse? 
Well, you have to forget everything he said in verses 25 to 27. He just literally taught election and the necessity of God revealing these things. And then he says, come to me. He's saying this outwardly. He's giving this outward call to come to him. But who are the ones who will come to him? Only those that it's revealed to. Right. That's what it takes. So, yes, of course, we believe that we should preach the gospel to anyone who will listen anywhere we can get an audience, right? Anywhere we can gather people and have a standing to open the word of God and preach the gospel, we should do that. And we don't know who the people are. We don't know what their heart is like. We don't know uh, if they've been predetermined or predestined from the beginning of the world to be believers or not. We don't know those things. But if we have the opportunity, we should preach the gospel to anyone and we should call them in this way. Come to Christ, right? If you're weary and heavy laden and he will give you rest. Is that a true statement? Sure. Yes, it's true, but it's not answering the question of how a person is able to come, how they're able to overcome the dead heart. And what does that take? It takes regeneration. It takes new life according to the will of God. So they take verses like this out of context and use them to promote free will when it is contrary to the, to the very context of what he's talking about here. Just because there is a call doesn't mean people have the ability in themselves, in their own free will, to answer the call, apart from the work of the Spirit. This is the way it is, and it's always been that way. So yes, anyone who comes to Christ for salvation, they will have rest. But how will they come? How can they come when they're dead in their trespasses and sins? When they're blinded, when they cannot see it? only if it's revealed to them from the Father who is in heaven, right? Only that way. Romans chapter 8 gives this sequence, and we have to take all of it. Romans chapter 8, 28 to 30. The free willers, what they want to do is cut off the first part. But we can't do that. This is the golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of redemption. Each one is built upon what comes before it, right? There is a progression in these things, and there's also a one-to-one-to-one-to-one correlation between them. Everyone who is in the first group is in the second group, is in the third group, is in the fourth group. It's all the same group of people. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conform to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and those these whom he predestined he also called and these whom he called he also justified and these whom he justified he also glorified so for new means to love them in advance god loved them before they were born and as a result of his love he predestined them and then those he predestined he called And those he calls, he justifies. And those he justifies, he glorifies. It's all the same group of people. And what is true at the end, glorification, right, is true because of predestination at the beginning. This is what gets the ball rolling, right? This is what is the key to everything. Well, here, Jesus is giving the call, but he's not negating what comes before that, what precedes it. And what precedes the call is predestination. Right, predestination. And what is the call? Come. 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here, weary and heavy laden in what way? What is the burden? What is the heavy burden that we need to be relieved of, that we need to be taken off of us? It is the burden of sin. That's the burden that we need to be delivered from. The burden of sin and the guilt of sin and the judgment of God coming upon us because of our sin. This is the need of man. The greatest need of man is to be delivered from their sin. Not to have uh, better self-esteem. Right? Not to feel good about themselves. Not to know that God loves them and thinks that they're wonderful. No, they need to know about their sin and the judgment of God on their sin. They have to come to see the burden of sin upon them before they can be delivered from their sin. Right. Which means we have to preach about what? Sin. Sin. We have to preach about sin and judgment, which no one likes. But we have to do it. <laughs> Psalm 38. Psalm 38 describes this burden. Psalm 38, verse 1 says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Right there, it's the burden of sin. Right. A heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. I'm bent over. I'm bowed down. Mourning all day long because of the burden of sin. Well, if that is us, if we are humble, contrite, lowly in spirit, repentant of our sins, and we come to Christ and ask him to relieve us from the burden of sin, what will he do? He says, I will give you rest. He takes the burden away from us. He takes the burden of sin off of us and takes it upon himself. And, And then it's put to death or it was put to death on the cross. And then what does he do? He replaces the burden of sin with a new burden. But what is this burden? Is this a heavy burden to bear? No, No, it's a light burden, an easy burden, right? A gentle and a humble burden. And this is the burden of Christ, which is the burden of righteousness, of godliness, of living a godly life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the burden of Christ living a righteous life. That is the life of Uh, That's the good life. That's the life that we should desire and that we should want. That's Psalm 119. Psalm 119 Mm -hmm. is describing verses 29 and 30. The yoke of Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Doing the will of God. That is the easy light burden. Living a righteous life. Sin. That's the heavy burden to bear. That is the one that we want to be delivered from. And that's why in Psalm 119, we remember Psalm 119, verses, verse 45. In Psalm 119, verse 45, there the prophet David says, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Right. I will walk at liberty. That is liberty. Sin is slavery. 
Righteousness is liberty. And how do we live a righteous life? Well, we have to be converted, right? We have to be regenerated and converted. We have to be filled with the Spirit and given a new heart. And then what does God write on that heart? He writes the law of God on that heart. And now we want to walk in the ways of God. And we have the Spirit there giving us strength, helping us, so that it is a light burden to bear. The burden of Christ. Right. This is the burden we want. So let us then take up that burden of Christ, the good burden that leads to rest and blessing for our souls. Okay, well, we'll stop there for tonight.